It's always interesting to me when, when sometimes when the, the music doesn't fit the subject matter. Because when I hear that music, and I, I'm expecting some good vibes, driving with the windows down on a, on a nice summer afternoon, maybe headed down to the beach. But the word from Haggai is perhaps not quite as relaxed as that. We are in week two of this three-week study on the book of Haggai. Yes, I have taken a two-chapter book and turned it into three weeks. You're welcome. Last week, we looked, at, um, we looked at chapter one. We looked at all 15 verses of chapter one. And one of the things that we, we discovered and we talked about last week is that, is that one of the things that Haggai is showing the people and that we need to know is that sometimes we come to this place where we place God at best second in our lives. Sometimes, in all honesty, we end up placing God third or, or fourth or, or fifth. But, but we end, that ends up happening because we place ourselves first. And when that happens, everything sort of, sort of gets out of whack, gets, gets discombobulated. We, we compared it to when the check engine light comes on in your car. And that just like the check engine light is a warning, there are other things in our lives that can be warnings. In the lives of Israel, having come back from the exile, the check engine light was the fact that they had yet to rebuild the temple, and then the prophet Haggai showing up and saying, you have yet to be rebuild the temple. You have yet to rebuild the temple. I don't know where that extra V came from in there. But it's... But it's this opportunity we have to pull over to the side to figure out what's going on, to do a diagnostic, and to get back moving in the right direction. And so we talked last week about how when we find ourselves out of sync, when, when we see that our, our, our spiritual check engine light is flashing, that we need to repent. Because only repentance will, will clear up the problem in our lives spiritually and get us back on the road in the right direction. So that was, that was chapter 1. And today we're going to start chapter 2. Chapter 2 of the book of Haggai. If you don't know where Haggai is or you can't find it, that's okay. In my Bible, it is only two pages facing each other. It is a short book. It is two books back. It's the third book. There's this book and there's a two more books before the end of the Old Testament. We'll say it that way. You've got Haggai, you've got Zechariah, and then you've got Malachi, and then you've got the beginning of the New Testament. So if you'll turn with me to Haggai, and if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, I encourage you to, to turn in one of those black hardback Bibles that are there in the pew front in front of you. And if you need a copy of God's Word, we encourage you to take that with you this morning as our gift to you. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? On the 21st day of the seventh month, the Word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shetal, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. 
Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. For the Lord of armies says this, Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all of the nations, so that the treasures of all of the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver... And gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And this is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we turn to Your Word this morning, as we turn to these, to these words of Haggai to Your people, I pray that the words that You had for Your people then will be words for Your people now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to You, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. Did you catch that that repeated phrase in there, the Lord of armies? It would be kind of hard to miss, right? God's making a point. If you're familiar with some different translations, you may be familiar with the phrase, the Lord of hosts. That word that we have translated as host, that can be translated as host, can also be translated as armies. The Lord of armies. Who are the members of this army? It's us. It's the people of God. And when He tells us that He is the Lord of armies, He is reminding us that He is our Lord. And so we pick this story in Haggai up, and it's it's about a month since the end of the first chapter. 1.15 says they they start finally rebuilding the temple on the 24th day of the 6th month. And then on the 21st day of the 7th month, the word of the Lord comes through the prophet Haggai again. 
as we look at these first few verses of this chapter, what we see is that, is that it seems that maybe some of the people are aware of and put off by the inferiority of the temple that they are building. Because the temple that they are building is but a shadow of the temple that Solomon had built. The temple that they are building, the temple that the Lord has commanded them to build, is is a poor reflection of the temple that Solomon had built that had been pulled down 70 years earlier by the Babylonian army. Now if you remember the story of the building of the temple, that first temple that Solomon built, you will remember that that David spends the last part of his reign gathering all of the materials to build the temple. Because they wanted the temple to be to the, to the glory of God and they wanted it to be magnificent. And it was. But when the Babylonian army comes in and pulls it down, guess what? All of that shiny stuff gets carted off. And we know that when the Persian rulers send them back to rebuild the temple, he sends them back with some of the stuff, but not with everything. And so the temple they're building, it's it's smaller in dimension. It's not as opulent and glitzy. And what we see here is we see that apparently... Some of the people are aware of that. And so Haggai comes to speak a word of encouragement to them. We get this really interesting thing in verse 3, where he asks three questions in a row. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Now, I I think that Haggai probably means these as rhetorical questions. I don't think he's he's talking to the people, expecting someone to stick their hand up. Oh, yeah, I, I was here. I remember. Yeah, you're right. It's not as pretty. No, what Haggai is doing is he's, he's asking a series of questions to prompt them to think. That's the purpose of a rhetorical question, right? The purpose of a rhetorical question, we get that word because it is a matter of rhetoric. It's a, it's a, it's a, a thing that we do to cause the listener to think. And so that's What's happening here? So, so let's run through these questions. Let's think through these three questions. Who is left that remembers this house in its former glory? Not many. It's been 70 years. There aren't that many left that remember. Because even if they had seen it when they were really little... They may not remember it 70 years later. Now, I know that there is nobody in this room that is even close to approaching 70. Certainly no one in the room that's over it. 
But I want you to think back to when you were a, a little kid. Do you remember the sanctuary that you grew up worshiping in accurately? You have a, you have a memory of it, but is it an accurate memory? There was a, a church, there was a building here, a sanctuary that was built in the 20s. Some of you grew up attending church, this church and that sanctuary. Some of you probably remember that sanctuary. But do any of you remember the sanctuary that preceded it? We've seen pictures of it. There's a picture of it right out here in the hallway. It was a a very plain, white, wooden building. But there are none alive who remember it. Who is left? Who is left that remembers this house in its former glory? Not not many, if any. Then he asked the second question. How does it look to you now? How does it look to you now? And as I read this question, I I'm not sure whether or not Haggai is speaking of the building that they are building or the building that had been there. It's not clear, is it? The the antecedent to the uh, pronoun is not clear. My mother would be very proud of me for remembering all of those English grammar words. Well, we know that the current looks paltry compared to the collective memory of the past. They may not have remember it, but these are men and women who were born in exile hearing stories from their parents and their grandparents on the wonders of Jerusalem and the temple. And over time, stories have a tendency of growing, don't they? And I wonder how many how much the story grew in exile in Babylon. So that's the current. What about the past? But How does it look to you now? How does the past look to you now? It's gone. The Babylonian army had torn it down and uprooted its foundations. That's why new foundations had to be laid. There was nothing left of the former temple. The past was gone and it wasn't coming back. And so now we get to this third rhetorical question. Doesn't it seem like nothing in comparison? In the book of Ezra, we're told that when the foundations are laid, the young people rejoice. And the older folks, the older Levites and priests, weep. 
Because for the young people, they have laid the foundations for God's temple. Something they have never experienced. But the older Levites and priests at this point, maybe some of them do remember. And they weep. Because just from the foundations, they know that the past is gone. And is never coming back. We know both here from Haggai and from Ezra that this attitude of the priest and the Levites affects the ongoing work of the temple. In fact, there's the implication here in Haggai that, that it's one of the reasons the work on the temple hadn't been done. Because it wasn't going to be as good as it was in the past. So why move forward? But we know this dynamic, don't we? We're familiar with this dynamic. Well, it's not how it used to be. Fairmont is not how it used to be. You should have been here when the tobacco market was here. Brothers and sisters, if I had a nickel for every time I had heard that since I moved to Fairmont, I could reopen the tobacco market. It was better in the past. We do that, don't we? I am of the age now, finally, where I'm starting to do that. I look back and I think, Oh my goodness, these kids and their, and their music. The music was better when I was their age. And I know that all of y'all thought that when I was their age about my music. I just happened to be correct. <laughs> well, and here are the seven most deadly words in any church. Well, we have always done it that way. Let me, let me clue you in on something that's, that's often not true. Always is often twice. We did it that way the last two times, and so that's always. But we do this, don't we? We, we get... We get wrapped up in, in looking at what was. And we forget to look and see what God is doing in front of us. We, we're facing the wrong direction. We face the past, and we want to live in the past because, man, it was great. Things were better. The music was better. There was less crime. The church was fuller. And we forget to see where God's pointing us moving forward. But see, Haggai is doing an important thing here. He's asking these rhetorical questions. He's asking them to think through the questions. But in asking these questions, he's doing this thing. He is acknowledging where they are. He's acknowledging the fact that they're thinking all of these things. 
He's acknowledging their disappointment. Now, there are some of us, and I am one of them, who can fall into that, woohoo, let's build this new thing, let's go, camp. And I am always up for trying the next new thing. The new cell phone, the new computer, the new social media platform, the new car technology. Man, I am so excited about this all-electric F-150 they're coming out with. I want one so bad. I'm in that camp. That's who I am. That's, that's, That's how God made me. But what I have to do, and and if you're in that camp, what you have to do is you have to to acknowledge people's disappointment. That the promises of the past didn't pan out and play out the way they thought they were going to. Because, Because there's grief in that process. There's grief in that disappointment. There's a grief for what was that those of us who never experienced it can't, we can't experience that grief. We haven't, we haven't had that loss. There's also a, a grief for the loss of the what might have been. If you were to, to walk down Main Street in Fairmont, in 1982, 1983, and you were seeing this worship center being built. It was testimony to a belief that life was going to go in a certain direction. The life of this town, the life of this congregation was going to move in a certain direction. It was built on that hope. It was built on that belief. And just a few years later, right, is when things began to change. Just a few years later is when the way the tobacco companies bought tobacco changed and the markets went away. And those jobs went away. And And our kids started graduating and leaving and going to college and not coming home. This this building, not just this worship center, but this building and the education building that was built in the 50s and the education building that was built in the 60s were built on a hope and a belief that life was going to be a certain thing. And life is not that in Fairmont right now anymore. And it is okay to grieve that loss. And people like me, who am not a Fairmonter, Fairmontonian, From Fairmont. And who's young. 
and who's naturally inclined to always be about the next thing, I've got to remember to slow down. And to acknowledge the disappointment and the grief that exists in this community. That grief is okay. But here is the other side of it. The promises of God are not yet done. The promises of God are not yet done. Even so, even so, be strong, Fairmont. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Fairmont First Baptist, Main Street Church. Be strong for all of the people in the land. This is the Lord's declaration. And what comes next? Work. Work, for I am with you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. It is okay to grieve the past. It is proper to grieve the past. But we need to be strong and proceed with the work of rebuilding for the Lord. Because God is with us. And in verse 5, we get to the, to the remembrance of the promise. Because see, there's a promise that underlies all of God's relationship with His people. These are the covenant promises. These are the covenant promises. The covenants that they go back to Noah. There's a promise from God in the Noahic covenant that He would not destroy the world with water again. heard a young person say one time, I know that God promised that He wouldn't destroy the world with water any again, but He seems to be a little mad at Robinson County. There's a promise in the Abrahamic covenant that God will use His people to be a blessing to all the nations. And then there's a promise in the Mosaic covenant that God will deliver His people. He delivered them out of Egypt, and He will continue to deliver them. It's a promise that He said as He brought them out of Egypt that He would bring them into a place of blessing. Remember, who Haggai is saying these words to. He is saying these words. He's reminding the people of this promise who had been carried off into Babylon, who had been in exile for 70 years, who were just now coming home. Remember the promise of God. They had been carried off into exile because of their disobedience. 
And repentance, as we talked about last week, repentance was the only way back. They were being brought back into the land because the promise was still valid. The promise was still good. God doesn't renege on His promises. And God's Spirit was present among His people. He had not forgotten them. In fact, I would say that they are going to be capable of being strong. That command that He has given them in verse 4 because of the promise of verse 5. Because God is with them. We, we need to remember that, that we are God's people. That we are a part of this covenant community that stretches all the way back through Moses and Abraham and Noah, all the way back to Adam. We are God's people. The promise belongs to us. God is going to ensure that we are in a place of blessing. Not in a gospel prosperity gospel sort of way, but in a place of real blessing, of true blessing. Of the blessing that comes with relationship with God through Christ. This relationship is the new promised land. This is the the place that we can experience God's bounty in our lives. But brothers and sisters, if the promise belongs to us, and it does, and I hope that that excites you, But if the promise belongs to us, so too do the warnings. If we disorder our worship, if we place something other than God first in our lives, we can and will be exiled. Disobedience still leads to exile. And like Judah, the only way to return is through repentance. This applies to us as individuals, but it also applies to us as a church. There was a season where things got off track. I know you don't like to think about it, you don't like to talk about it, but you know that it's true. There was a season when things got off track. It was a hard and it was a difficult season. And there were some people in this fellowship who stood up and did some really hard work. Some of you who were here in the room were a part of that. It was hard, and it was difficult. But if and when there is repentance, we can return and reclaim the promise. Because see, God is going to shake things up. That's what we get to in verses 6 and 7, right? God is going to shake things up. He's going he's to intentionally interrupt the natural order of things. Things are not going to go the way they're supposed to for the purpose of His glory. For the purpose of Jesus. 
See, the incarnation of the Son, the, the inbreaking of God into human history and life. When John tells us that the Word came and dwelt among us, that's shaking up the natural order. Remember what happens when Jesus dies. The world shakes. Literally. The world shakes and the veil is torn between God and His people. Things have been turned upside down all for His glory. In the first chapter of Haggai, God's shaking things up so that Israel would put Him first. And He will shake you and I up to remember to put Him first. But then something happens, right? He shook them up. They're doing what they're supposed to do. And now He's saying He's going to shake them up again. And it happens to us. He shakes us up. We, we check our check engine light. We repent. We turn. We work. And things still feel shaken up. And why is that? It's because God wants to remind us that we are citizens of an unshakable kingdom. The ways of the world, the ebbs and flows of culture, of all of that stuff out there has no effect on His kingdom. His kingdom is eternal and unshakable. God often puts people in uncomfortable situations just before He does something amazing. Just before something happens that's never happened before. Think about the story of the feeding of the 5,000, right? They're all out there. 5,000 men. We talk about the feeding of the 5,000. The 5,000 were the men. The women and children weren't counted, so it was probably close to fifteen or 20,000 at least. They're out there, and they're listening to Jesus. And they get hungry. That's an uncomfortable situation. I mean, these days, for most of us, being around 20,000 people would make us uncomfortable. And then they're hungry, and they don't have any food. God makes them uncomfortable. He makes the disciples uncomfortable, right? Because Jesus says, okay, you're going to have to take care of this. And, and the disciples are like, who, 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 me? And then he does something that he's never done before. He takes a few fish and a few loaves and he blesses it. And he feeds. We're in an uncomfortable situation right now, aren't we? There is a massive shakeup happening in our world. Things that just 10, 15, 20 years ago seemed normal or no longer normal. Things that 10, 15, 20 years ago would have seen un, unimaginable are happening. And it can cause us to panic. And it can cause us to despair. But we need not despair because we are in an unshakable kingdom. We need to remember that God is sovereign and God is at work. And that God is getting ready to do something 
truly amazing. I have said for several years that I think that we are on the cusp of a great national or even global awakening. I still think that that's, that that's true. I think that when you look for it, the signs are there. But I also think that we are on the cusp of, of an awakening. Not a revival. Revival is too small a word. Awakening here in Fairmont and in Robinson County. It's why I'm here. Not because I am proudful. Pri- proudful? Proud. Wow. I cannot speak this morning. Not because I am proud enough to think that I have some integral, important part to play in it. It will be only the work of God. But I am here because I want a front row seat to the working of the Holy Spirit that is coming. You know, the temple that they were building was but a shadow of the temple that Solomon had built. Which itself was but a shadow of the temple that we will be built when God fully declares His reign and the new heavens and the new earth join at that temple in Jerusalem. When the Messiah rules the world from that temple in Jerusalem. And that temple will be more glorious than any of the previous because it will contain Jesus. All of that glory shall put all of the glory that comes from gold and silver to shame. I will provide peace in this place, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace, says the Lord of armies. A declaration that goes to a people that had been carried off by Babylon, that were still oppressed by Persia, that had the the Greek and the Roman empires coming. And yet the promise of God remains. I will provide peace. God will provide peace for us. Not in a geographic place, but in a relational place. In Jesus. See, God is reminding the people in Jerusalem that He had worked in the past, first in pulling them out of Egypt, but then even in building the temple under Solomon. But that that work wasn't done. That He had been at work when He had sent them into exile for their disobedience. For their idol worship. For their refusal to treat others with compassion and justice over and over and over again. From Isaiah to Jeremiah to Amos to Jonah to Micah. Read the words of the prophets. Why are the people of God sent into exile? Because they refuse to acknowledge Him as their King. They refuse to let His kingdom reign. You know, I think we can and should look to the past to see the ways that God was faithful to us in the past. 
But I also think that we can run the risk of getting stuck in the past. Like those Levites and priests in Ezra did of dwelling there. This is the difference between nostalgia and history. History is looking back at the past, seeing where it was, letting it inform where we are and where we are going. Nostalgia is a desire to just live in the past. And nostalgia can be great. Man, I walk into one of these like 1950s style diners, it is awesome. But it's nostalgia. It's not history. How has God worked in the past? He's provided and he's blessed. Brothers and sisters, we need to root ourselves in the past and in the promises of God, but move forward and continue to do the work that he is calling us to do. But it's only possible. It's only possible if we repent and seek after Jesus. Not just as individuals, but as a church. Are you ready? Are you ready to be a part of what God is going to do here? Are you ready to be a part of this awakening? I want to be. And so it's going to demand my repentance and following Jesus. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 317, Only Trust Him. 317.